the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. When the Assyrians came into Samaria, they intermarried with the Jews who were living there, and the result of that intermarriage became the Samaritans. The Samaritan people that you read about in the New Testament were the result of the intermarriage between Assyrians and Jews, which is why when you read in the New Testament, there's this long-standing animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It's because the Jews never accepted the Samaritans because they saw them, using a derogatory term, but this is the way they saw them, as half-breeds. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Kings. Mankind is well known for having prejudices and even animosity towards others of difference. Whether it's race, culture, religion, or heritage, these prejudices have countless negative effects as we've seen throughout our history. In Judah's case, there was no exception when it came to the Samaritans. In today's message, Pastor Gary gives us some background history on the origin of the Samaritans. In our study, we learn that one of the main reasons Judah had such disdain towards the Samaritans was due to their intermixing with the Assyrians. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message, Warnings from a Just and Patient God. Let's take our Bibles, go to 2 Kings 17. That's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Kings 17. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah... Hashia son of Elah became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hashia, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hashia was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hashia, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. 2 Kings uh, chapter 17 here describes the siege of Israel by the Assyrian Empire. The year was roughly 723 B.C. 
the Assyrians were a very powerful and had begun to develop a very vast and expansive kingdom. From roughly 900 B.C. to 606 B.C., the Assyrian Empire was the world-dominating force. Their empire encompassed all of what is today modern Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the island of Cyprus. They also encompassed most of Turkey, some of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and as far east as some of Iran. And now in our study today, they have captured, besieged, and taken into their uh, geographical territory the northern kingdom of Israel. Now again, remember, as we are making our way through kings, the, the nation of Israel is a divided nation at this point. They have a kingdom to the north, capital city Samaria, and they have a kingdom to the south known by Judah, capital city Jerusalem. We're talking the northern kingdom was besieged by the Assyrians in 723 B.C. It was a three-year siege. And then when they finally took captive the king and the empire, uh, the Bible says that they deported Israelites to Assyria and they imported Assyrians into the vacant land of Israel now. So what happens at this point in our study through the Bible is, for all intents and purposes, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone now. It's gone. The southern kingdom of Judah is still intact for about another 135 years or so. But then the, a similar thing will happen to them as has happened here in the northern kingdom. The Babylonian empire will now overtake the Assyrian empire later. And the Babylonians will besiege the southern kingdom of Judah. That's for a different Bible study. But for today, what's at hand here in chapter 17 is the Assyrians have come, besieged Israel, taken captive the king, dispersed the people, deported them to Israel, imported Assyrians, and now you have, again, for all intents and purposes, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. This is where that expression comes from, the, the ten lost tribes of Israel. By the way, they're never really lost to God, okay? They've been scattered and dispersed. But practically speaking, the northern kingdom is now gone. Hashia, in our story here, is the last king of Israel in the northern kingdom. He reigns, the Bible says, nine years. It tells us in verse 2 that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So it does tell us that he was bad, he was wicked, and I don't mean bad in like a hip, cool way. I mean, he was bad, bad, evil, wicked, but he wasn't quite as bad as some other kings who had gone before him. Nevertheless, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as did all 19 kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. They all were bad kings. Well, the story tells us here in the Bible that before Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, actually attacks and besieges the northern kingdom of Israel, he negotiates first with Hashia. And this was typical back in the day. If there was a powerful country or kingdom that had leverage, they would first come to you and negotiate. They would say, hey, if you play your cards right, we'll let you stay ruling over your people group, but we're going to absorb your borders into our empire... And as long as you honor us, pay a royal fee every year, everything will go well with you. You'll stay king over your little group of people, and you'll just be subject to us. This is why in verse 3 there, it says that Hashia was a vassal to King Shalmaneser and paid him tribute year after year because Hashia, in his rebellion against the Lord, didn't turn to God for help. He decided to acquiesce to this powerful king, Shalmaneser, became his vassal, became subjugated to him. Said, okay, all right, I'll play by your rules, and I'll give you a royal fee every year. Shalmaneser patted him on the head. He's like, that's a good boy. Now, if you just behave yourself, everything's going to go well with you. If, it, if you don't, if, if you misbehave, 
I have some people and they'll take care of you, you know? So that's what goes down. Now, in the story here, Hashi decides one day, you know what? I'm tired of being bullied by this punk king. I'm not going to pay him any more royal tribute. And he hooks up with Pharaoh of Egypt. And he says, you know what? You don't like this guy either, do you? And let's together bind ourselves together here in an agreement. And let's both of us fight Shalmaneser. And let's be free of his, you know, reign over us. Well, before that whole thing could actually develop, Shalmaneser smells the plot. He comes unglued. And he marches against Hashia, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. He advances against Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. And in three years' time, 723, 722, by 721 B.C., Assyria has now conquered the northern kingdom. He throws Hashia in prison. And it is the end of the northern kingdom as far as we know it. What Shalomaneser then does is he deports Israelites, some of them, not all, deports thousands of Israelites from that northern region to Assyria. And he imports Assyrians into the region of Israel that he's just now taken into his kingdom. Now, interestingly, and you know, I point this out just as a matter of interest, not because we need archaeology to substantiate the Bible. We believe the Bible to be true, and it's, it's just interesting then when archaeology catches up with the truth of the Bible. In 1847, this stone prism was discovered in ancient Assyria. 1847, archaeologists uh, discovered this, and it is a, an Assyrian record of the events that we read about here in 2 Kings 17. And I'm going to read for you what the small font says. This is what the king of Assyria said. This is the ancient record discovered that dates back to the 8th century B.C. Quote, At the beginning of my royal rule, the town of the Sumerians, which are the Israelites who lived there in, in Samaria, I besieged, conquered for the God who let me achieve this my triumph. I led away as prisoners 27,290 inhabitants of it, and equipped from among them 50 chariots for my royal corps. The town I rebuilt better than it was before and settled therein people from countries which I had conquered. I placed an officer of mine as governor over them and imposed upon them tribute as is customary for Assyrian citizens. So we, we actually have an ancient historical record of what we read here in the Bible, the events of 2 Kings 17. And this record is identical, really, in many ways. The Bible doesn't give us the actual number of captives, but this historical record does, 27,290. Now, a, a, a little bit about the Assyrians so you can appreciate just the, the horrific conditions under which the Israelites were now uh, subjected. The Assyrians were ruthless people. Uh, without exaggeration, they were the ISIS of their day. They were ruthless. They would kill people, behead people without blinking an eye. The Assyrians were known for raping women when they would capture a city, pillaging the city, and then even disemboweling women who were pregnant. Okay? They were an absolutely ruthless people. They, they practiced impaling people on poles. They were really the forerunners of crucifixion. Uh, this was the Assyrians. And what they would typically do when they captured a foreign country and absorbed them into their empire was that they would strip them naked to humiliate them, and then they would lead them as captives. Listen to this. They would lead them as captives by putting hooks in their jaws and roping them together like fish on a string. And that's how they would lead you. I want you to picture thousands of Israelites stripped naked, humiliated, 
the excruciating pain of having hooks through your jaws, being pulled along like animals on a rope about 600 miles. That's what happens here in this story. They are deported to the cities of Assyria, which is basically the major metropolitan cities of ancient Assyria are in modern Iraq today. Okay? The ancient city of Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which is in Iraq. This is where they were deported. Now, at the same time, Shalmaneser imported Assyrians into the land of Israel because this was typical for the way they would repatriatize now a new territory. So they brought in Assyrians who then influenced you in the lifestyle, ways, behaviors, manners, and everything about the Assyrians. This was their way of just kind of incorporating you into their empire by deporting some and importing others. And the Bible tells us this is exactly what happened here. Now, when they imported Assyrians into the capital city of Samaria, here's what this is an important historical point to help you understand the New Testament. When the Assyrians came into Samaria, they intermarried with the Jews who were living there, and the result of that intermarriage became the Samaritans. The Samaritan people that you read about in the New Testament were the result of the intermarriage between Assyrians and Jews. Which is why when you read in the New Testament, there's this long-standing animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It's because the Jews never accepted the Samaritans because they saw them, using a derogatory term, but this is the way they saw them, as half-breeds. They saw them as, you're not fully Jewish, you've intermarried with the Syrians, you are half Assyrian, half Jewish, we reject you, we don't accept you. You remember that conversation the Samaritan woman has with Jesus in John chapter 4? There's this great dialogue that they're having there, and she recognizes that this is unusual that you, a Jew, are even talking to me, a Samaritan. She starts debating him about the right place to worship. You Jews say it's Jerusalem, we say it's Mount Gerizim. Okay, that's because Samaritans had a whole different way of viewing things and a system of worship. They only embraced the first five books of the Old Testament. A lot of differences between Jews and Samaritans. And Jews, by and large, did not accept Samaritans and vice versa because of what's happening here. There's this intermarriage of Assyrians with Jews. And now uh, the Jewish bloodline, if you will, is tainted as far as the Jews are concerned. And so they reject the Samaritans. But that's why it happened. it happened here. Well, when the Assyrians come into the land of Israel. A very strange and unusual thing happens here. Look further in chapter 17. Let me draw your attention to verse 24. In verse 24, it says this, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuta, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharavim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. This is verse 25. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria. The people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria did not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. And then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests who took you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. All right, your attention, please. So here we have this, it's, you know, a very unusual story here where lions are sent by God, you know, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. But actually, it's just lions. And they're sent there, and they attack the people. 
Now, this, this seems a little unusual. What is going on here? Okay, you have to understand God is jealous not only for his people, he's jealous for the land that he's given to his people. You start coming into the land of Israel. Look, it's not just about the God of Israel. It's also about the Israel of God. And you start coming in and, and laying claim to the land, then you have to not only understand the, the land, but you have to understand the God of the land. And the God of the land requires you to honor him because he is supreme and sovereign over the land. It's kind of like if you have somebody come living in your house for a while, you know, hopefully they're an invited guest. But even so, if they're an invited guest and they're staying there for any length of time, they have to kind of live by your house rules. You have certain house rules. They don't just get to do whatever they want. There's some house rules around the house. Well, this is kind of the way God is. Like, you come into my house, there's some house rules here. You're going to worship me. I'm the God of this land that you've now occupied. So lions are sent out. Now, the king of Assyria, I don't know how they make the connection. It doesn't say. The king of Assyria says, we've got to send one of these priests we've taken captive. We've got to send him back there to the land of Israel so that he can teach the people how to worship so that they won't be eaten by lions. Not the best motivation, right? I'm going to worship God so I'm not eaten by a lion. But anyway... The priest goes back to teach them how to worship. Please make note, this is not a legitimate priest. The reason we know this is because there weren't any legitimate priests in the northern kingdom of Israel. The only legitimate priests were of the tribe of Levi, and the Levites served as priests in the temple of the Lord. Where was the temple of the Lord? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was part of the southern kingdom of Judah. There were no legitimate priests to the north. These were pseudo-priests who just decided to become priests. And so when he sends one of these priests back, he's not a legitimate priest, so he doesn't really teach them legitimate worship. And as a result, we find a very convoluted form of worship. Look here further in our study, verse 32. Verse 32 says that they worship the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worship the Lord, but... They also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So, you know, if you don't have a legitimate priest to teach you how to worship, you're not going to really learn how to do it right. And what's their form of worship? We're going to worship God. We're going to do the sacred thing. But we're also going to do the secular thing. We're going to worship our own gods also in addition to worshiping the true and living God. But you can't do that. There's only one God to be worshipped and there is no other God. And so you have this admixture here. It's a very brackish form of worship. It's not fresh water. It's not salt water. It's just kind of this mixture here where we're going to worship God. And we're going to worship also the secular things. And we're going to kind of bring it together in this convoluted mess. And let me tell you something. Sadly, but truthfully, this convoluted brackish worship is still happening in some churches today where you have a mixture of the sacred and the secular. And I'm not making this kind of thing up. But it just always you know, surprises me. And I suppose the longer I hear about these things, the less surprised I should be. But so my oldest son, Tyler, was recently at another church where somebody we knew was going to be a guest speaker. At the end of the service, the music on the way out was Will Smith getting jiggy with it. I'm not making that up. Now, listen, you know, I like Will Smith, great actor, fun, you know, fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I get that. I guarantee you Carlton wouldn't like this idea. Let me tell you something. Getting jiggy with it in church? Is that appropriate? No, 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 no. Listen to me. <laughs> On a serious note, I remember one time Barbara Walters asked Will Smith, what, what does getting jiggy with it mean, Will? 
And he said, Barbara, you don't want to know. But anyway, that's the kind of thing. We have that going, what? Seriously? That's happening? That kind of admixture? Now, listen, on a side note, and this is not the main point of the Bible study, but even though this is not a legitimate priest, and, and they're not legitimately worshiping the Lord, I remember when I had to learn how to worship the Lord. Now, what do I mean by that? Because I want to clarify this. I believe that true, and when we say worship, let me just qualify this first of all. Obviously, not all worship is just singing in church. Worship is a lifestyle, okay? It's how you live and how you honor the Lord. But it also includes singing in church. In addition, I want to qualify it by saying this, that true worship emanates out of the overflow of a heart that has a relationship with Jesus, okay? Nobody really has to teach you how to worship, okay? Nobody really has to teach any more than somebody has to teach you how to cheer for your favorite team. It just happens. When you go to the stadium, it happens, okay? When you come to church, speaking specifically now about worship and singing, nobody really has to teach you. As you know Christ, you just want to begin to worship Him out of an overflow of the heart. But I can remember when I first got saved, and I grew up in a pretty... Uh, mainline traditional church. Nothing wrong with mainline traditional churches. I'm just saying that's all that I was exposed to at that point. I got saved when I was 15. So before that, all I really knew was you sing a hymn on the way in, a hymn when they shake you down to take the offering, and a hymn on the way out. Okay? So you're singing when you come in, when you're shaking down, when you're walking out. That's the way we did it. And we had a few creeds we recited in the middle of all that. Okay? So my first time going to a church that had modern worship, what, was just a shell-shocking experience for me. Because I, I, remember, I remember being at a church service, you know, where I had gone with some of my friends and they had like modern worship, worship team, like, what's this? A keyboard, what? Guitars, drums, hello, hot pockets. You know, and I'm just kind of like, I'm looking at this and I'm just like becoming like, what in the world is happening here? And then... And then, as, as the worship is getting to go, and now i got people all around me like, why do they have questions about? They all got their hands up in the air. What's all the questions about? And I can remember myself in the middle of the worship, I, halfway through, I'm thinking like, okay, i got a few questions too myself. Like, how many times are we going to keep singing this chorus over and over again? Okay? This is the air I breathe. I get it. Can we move on? So I remember having to learn some things about worship, okay? And I can tell you the main thing about worship in terms of singing in church that I had to learn was to drop the pride and stop being so self-conscious. That it is okay to actually get excited about the team that you're on. And that team is Jesus. So worship Him. Listen, Psalm 134 verse 2 says, lift your hands in the sanctuary of the Lord and praise the Lord. It's okay to have the liberty to do that. Now, we're not going to prescribe that here. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to have ushers walking up and down the aisle. Time to lift your arms. Lift your arms. Okay? Because again, that has to come from the overflow. But, but you have the liberty, even though for some of you, like it was for me years ago, it's a little weird. It's a little, now, you know, look, there's another spectrum too, where some of you who have come from churches that are a little more wild have come in here going, this is dull. You know, so every, everybody's perspective is a little bit different. I'm convinced, okay, because worship becomes a very passionate thing, a very subjective thing that people are very, you know, they're very concerned. This is the only way. Is it new songs, old songs? Is it, 
Is it the hymns? Is it the choruses? Is it fast? Is it slow? Here's what I'm convinced about. I'm convinced that God likes all kinds and all forms of songs and worship and singing as long as it has the right lyrics to express the right message and it comes from the right heart. What a fantastic time we've had studying Second Kings together today. Don't forget to join us next time as we continue to dig into the story of God, working through history and nations to shape, discipline, and preserve His people, Israel. We at Cornerstone Connection would love the opportunity to serve you further as God writes your own story in His redemptive plan. We have companion resources for you on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, where Pastor Gary offers a deeper look into several of his studies to help you gain a better understanding of the Word. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us anywhere with the mobile app. Cornerstone Chapel is located in Leesburg, Virginia, and we'd love for you to join us for weekend services or our Wednesday night Bible study and fellowship time. Our Sunday services begin at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m., and Wednesday nights begin at 7 p.m. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, feel free to call 703-771-1500. We continue to pray for you, that you would understand the greatness of God's love for you. We have loved our time together today and invite you to join us again for the next edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.